This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Need a professional place to work from? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This week on a special Valentine's Day edition of Meet and 3, we put a twist on the lovey-dovey holiday. The mission statement is save the world through silliness and chocolate, and in parentheses, launch a chocolate bar into outer space. But I'm having um, some conflict in the board members with the parentheses. That's okay. He cited that in his area there used to be 30 dairy farms and now there are three. You know, dessert was political, and what you had on the dessert table said more about you than other markers of success. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news and storytelling roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm Valerie Lomas. And uh, I don't know, we should talk about the Democratic debate before we introduce our amazing guest <laughs> for the week. You know, I think we Mayo should. And the, and the crazy thing about our <laughs> oh, guest... Oh, you're right. It's a perfect we, segue. Let's bring him in. Because, okay, Ben. Yes. Ben thank Simon, you for joining welcome. us. Uh, ben Simon, founder and CEO of Ben to Table. Uh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So, Valerie, why did you want to involve Ben in the political conversation? <laughs> so, I mean, so the crazy thing, Ben is obviously now in this world of food, which we will get to later, but he's spent a good bit of his career um, working on campaigns, including election campaigns, uh, different issue campaigns, but even our my my president, Barack Obama's initial launch into the White House, uh, Ben was a part of it and continued on with the team um, years into transforming um, that campaign coalition into a real organized movement. So, uh, you know, and just watching the debate last night, to be honest, I only saw snippets. I did try to watch the whole thing, but... Um, I didn't try to watch it. You I, didn't try I, to watch? I watched the first 10 minutes and then I couldn't deal with it anymore. So no. Yeah. I mean, I was just so glad to see um, Mayor Bloomberg, you know, our New York City's former mayor. <laughs> I actually didn't live here. I moved right when he left office. But watching... um what you? <laughs> right. Watching him get taken to task for just his his reality, his yeah. truth, his past, um, it, was, it was interesting because... I guess if you just buy ads and you don't have, you, you don't go through our traditional process, uh, you have to wait for the debate stage yeah. for that. Yeah. Well, a, f- a friend of mine on the way down here mentioned that uh, the idea that the only thing purer than A.B. Klobuchar's uh, hatred of Pete Buttigieg is everyone's hatred of Mayor Bloomberg <laughs> on that stage. Yeah, yeah, that was that was definitely uh, palpable and and pretty entertaining actually in on the debate stage. I mean he. Whatever. I think, like, <laughs> no, okay, no, and no, I'm, I'm just, gonna, I'm going to say this quickly because yeah. we do want to uh, get into ben. Ben's story. But I think the reason other candidates, like, obviously there are issues with, like, okay, is he really a Democrat? Maybe he's a little bit of a Republican. But so were some of the other people on stage. You know, they're... they're Much longer ago. <laughs> true. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think the real issue is they kind of feel like he's cheated the contest and they've literally given like their probably their sanity their health out here on the campaign trail like having a heart attack over the past what two years just pouring themselves into these campaigns and here comes this guy 
with with a, a lot of money spending it and he just kind of gets to step into the yeah, spotlight. Yeah. Um, all right. So, <laughs> so Ben, tell yes. us about the connection between your career in politics and, and campaigns and what you're doing now. Maybe let's start with an introduction to what is Ben to Table sure. and work our way backwards. Um, thank you. Yeah, so Ben to Table essentially is, think of Stitch Fix, but for your pantry rather than your closet, right? So um, we want it to be so that when you open that closet door, you're seeing an incredible bounty of amazing ingredients to cook with that you maybe wouldn't have had before or you would have had, but less good versions of before. Um, so it's an online subscription box that uh, you can sign up to receive either uh, sort of pantry essentials, so things like heirloom beans and grits and pastas, uh, or global delicacies, so interesting small producer ingredients from different places in the world each month, um, or both. Tell us about your most recent box. If I had ordered it, what would I find inside? And is that a box I see on the table? It is a box you see on the table. Um, so uh, um, what you'd see in the Italy delicacies box, which is what our subscribers get this month and may or may not be what Valerie's opening, I'm not sure, um, but it's, uh, um, is, as an example, um, a really interesting uh, toasted fragola sarda pasta. So from a, a producer in, I believe, Abruzzo, but don't, well, I guess quote me on that because we're on the radio. Sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, two different antipasti. One, uh, grilled burrattane onions, which are these sort of almost like cipollini, but sweet, but also smoky from the grill, crunchy, just really delicious. And how do you, how do you find these producers and, and choose the products to include? So I tend to start with a few different ingredients that I know I want to use. So um, in the case of this Italy box, for instance, I really knew I didn't... I get you. I really knew I wanted a Calabrian chili paste or a, some sort of a sort of chili pepper paste. And so I actually found several different suppliers who I either have worked with or am in touch with and got different products, got different versions and tried several in different combinations and sort of decided which one I thought was best, most versatile, that of most that I that I personally would be most interested in using repeatedly. Um in other instances, there are very specific products I have in mind that I maybe have encountered in the past um, in my own travels or that someone's told me about that I um, seek out. So, oh this is a fairly, a fairly recent endeavor for you. You launched in November, uh, but you've had a whole career prior to this. So tell us about some of the experiences that you had that have, that have led up to launching Bent to Table. Sure. So as uh, Valerie was mentioning, um, I got my start in electoral politics and electoral campaigning, and uh, at some point transitioned primarily into, and a specific point, 2013, transitioned primarily into climate and environmental campaigning uh, by taking a job at Greenpeace, working on international environmental issues. What's, what's it like, I mean, just because we're in the, the middle of an election season now, what's it, what's it like working inside a, a political campaign? It sounds tiring. Campaign? Did you get tired? <laughs> um, I mean, it's, yes, <laughs> very, very tired. Uh, you, honestly, so I've, I spent a little bit of time in restaurants. Like I was a server and a busboy also sort of before I went to college, so um, quite a while ago. But it, it's not dissimilar to when you're just deep in the weeds anywhere just all the time, right? It's like 
you're working 10 to 2 for extended stretches. Um, and uh, that, that really wears on you and takes a toll. But it's also incredible. It, it is still the case that my best friends in the world um, came from that very short stretch when I was really involved in campaigning um, or in electoral in election campaigns specifically. Are there are there lessons that you learned in that period of your life that you've been able to apply now since starting Vent to Table? Uh, certainly, in terms of how to think about uh, both getting a lot done in a little amount of time, and in terms of what might inspire people, what might get people interested in essentially going on a journey with you, right? Which is a very similar type of uh, challenge with right. when you're getting people to sign up for something new as it is when you're trying to convince them to support a candidate in either with votes or with money or with time. Yeah. One of the things that struck me, and actually I bet Valerie has uh, more insightful thoughts on this than I do, but one of the things that struck me since starting Burlap and Barrel is the extent to which I have had to create a narrative for myself or at least adapt my, my actual complicated and true narrative to be a less complicated but still true narrative that works for the press and works for sort of a uh, you know a public statement of who I am as a person but who the comp what the company is and how those two things go hand in hand um, yeah I mean I think that's an interesting point Ethan you know because obviously you're a founder and and owner of a business and and I think in like today in 2020 it is so important that people like they're not just buying your actual spices, they're buying the brand. Yeah. And like you kind of are the brand. Well, I think in a lot of ways you have to, you ha you, you also, Valerie, like you have to be. Um, and I mean, the reason I bring this up is because, right, exactly. Your, ben, your <laughs> yeah. company is called Ben, ben you're to the Table. Brand. Yeah. You've, made your, you've made yourself in a lot of ways sort of Indeed. the- Your the, face is on the box. The I, candidate. I had to be talked into that, I Is that say. you? Um, that is you. That is, it's, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a it's caricature a, of me. I like, it's um, a very nice animation. Thank you. Of your um, for anyone, if you go to my website or Instagram, you'll bentotable.com. You'll see um, a version of me, a cartoon <laughs> version of me staring back at you. Um, I mean, ultimately, the uh, the whole kind of brand premise here and why anyone would sign up is you have to buy into my palate and my tastes, right? It doesn't. No one would bother otherwise, and so we decided to lean into that rather than leaning out of that. How does that feel? And that is, honestly, that's a, chef, that's a chef-y answer, mm. kind of, right? Because, like, once you have someone that you kind of, like, trust as a brand, yeah. then you're you're willing to, like, go go on that journey with them and take that risk and, and get a box of items that, you know, you know everything in that box is so curated to something that you would enjoy because Ben has put them there. Well put. Um, I, I have a, a, my friend, uh, I have a friend named uh, a former colleague, Tori, who sent me an email the other week, which was so kind and about the first box that she had received after subscribing. And the what she said in it was, you know, this is it's already changing how I eat, right? It's already I never knew beans could be this tasty. I hadn't realized, um, you know, what I could do with these different ingredients. And that is exactly the kind of journey I'm hoping to. Uh, to help some people go on. 
And I, I just want to make a, a point because I feel like our generation, uh, we've bought into cooking for ourselves now. And maybe like five or 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. But we had like Blue Apron and Plated and all of these people sending boxes, subscription boxes to people. And I think we learned how, like we as a generation learned how to like saute spinach and cook chicken breasts, like things that I think are, are fairly basic, but um, you know, we just simply weren't doing. So now I think we're at a time where we do want that next step of like, okay, well, I know how to, I know how to roast vegetables, but maybe if I put this interesting sauce on them, like they'll taste different. Or if I use the spice, I'm going to have this completely new experience. So I just feel like the timing for this is, um, like we're kind of at this like wonderful pivotal moment, right? We've shunned Soylent. We said no to Soylent. <laughs> and I think we're saying let like less to Blue Apron because we realize they're sending us, you know, boxes of vegetables and protein we can get at the store. But we do want to like take things to the next level. Yeah. And I, I mean, I really think this is designed for the person who doesn't need a meal kit, right? It's for, you know how to cook you maybe could have your horizons expanded and are interested in that for sure, right? It's not for master chefs, but it's for people who have a sense of what they're about in the kitchen and are interested in discovering new things or simply don't have the time or wherewithal to access products like these on their own, right? For the most part, there's some stuff I'm able to source that really I'm the only supplier or you'd have to hunt really, really hard. Most other things you can find, but you'd have to go to each individual supplier on their own, hunt it down, um, and not be sure you're getting the thing that will work for what you need. And so um, my hope is that with combination of my own sort of curation, my own testing, my own sort of tips and tricks that I put in the box and write as in blog posts on the site, can help you make the most of these really interesting ingredients, but that you can also take them in an infinite number of directions, right? It's not the Spain box we did wasn't, um, here's all the things you need to make paella, right? It was, here's six different really interesting things which you can use in myriad of ways. Here are several things you can do with each, but like that's really the tip of the iceberg. We, we talked about your background in politics, but we haven't really touched yet on your background working internationally, doing international development, which I think clearly has influenced um, your, your taste and your food experiences. Yeah. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit maybe about your work in that world? And I, I'm obviously not familiar with that wor world as much as both of you are, but your work in that world and how... Um, and where food might have intersected with that yeah. world and how that kind of opened up your own, like, taste to different things. Absolutely. So when I was at Greenpeace, I was doing work essentially as a, almost as an internal consultant. So working with different offices, different ca campaigns around the world. Greenpeace in the U.S. is, I'd say, viewed generally as kind of the left flank of the mainstream environmental movement. Um, and um, it's one of many, many actors. Obviously, it has a special place in my heart, but it's generally viewed as one of many actors. In many places in the world, it kind of is 
the mainstream environmental movement um, for a variety of different reasons. And that means there's an, like the, the image a lot of us have is kind of different than what it is elsewhere, um, is the reason I say that. And um, so we were working, or I was on part of a team working with different campaigns and different offices, and I focused specifically on climate and food. Uh, those two can so sustainable agriculture and climate and energy campaigns. And there were some really interesting experiences I was able to have working on specific campaigns, but also helping to design sort of international strategies that helped me think about food in a very different way. I had always been um, driven by food, interested in, I was always a, a foodie. I always ate well when I was growing up. We'd always celebrate special occasions by going out for a nice meal rather than with a gift. I cooked from a very young age, but it was in this experience working on trying to promote sustainable agriculture internationally that I think my, my sense of what good food is, what we should be trying to push for and promote was really significantly expanded. And a lot of what we talk about in that kind of campaigning and advocacy space often is solutions, is the idea that we can't just oppose bad things. So we can't just oppose Monsanto expanding into and taking over some area of um, wherever we're talking about, whether it's Philippines or India or Turkey or Kenya, but also we have to do things to promote the more ecological approaches that we favor. Um, and so from the sort of non-governmental or campaigning space, that can sometimes be tricky because it tends to, it almost always runs into the, like money always enters that equation somewhere, right? And you're always at some point reaching this, like how do we get someone to buy something question? Um, how do we get them to change the way, their consumer behavior to an extent? And so with Bent to Table, I'm trying in many ways to be on that solution side where all the incentives are aligned and where we can help to scale sort of better approaches to agriculture in the U.S. and abroad. We're going to get into some of those questions and, and discuss that a little more deeply, but we are also going to take a break before we do. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's Rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's Rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. And we're back. Uh, you're listening to Why Food. Ben Simon is our guest this week. And we were just talking about some of the experiences that he's had uh, in political and environmental, specifically environmental campaigns, and the connection to what he's doing now. 
so yeah, Ben, tell us tell us about um, was there a campaign, a particular campaign that you worked on at Greenpeace that sort of exemplified the relationship between activism and food that you're trying to achieve now? Yeah, so the I think the best the best example of that actually is a campaign I worked on in or worked with some colleagues on in the Philippines, where um, we'd been working with some uh, some local farmers who were already farming in a in an ecological manner, right? Who had been resisting um, the sort of ongoing takeover from international. Um, what were they growing? How many? Think mang- mangoes okay. and some other crops as well. Okay. I mean, part of the part of what makes it a tricky answer is that um, what they're doing is this really biodiverse approach yeah. of lot, you know, lots of crops in the same area. So it's not like it was a maize farm, and not that that's a thing in the Philippines necessarily. Yeah. But um, the is basically trying to build these networks of local farmers who were um, already sort of had this different approach and equipping them in various ways with networks and expertise to help um, other farmers who are kind of ecological farming curious to actually shift their own practices. So um, the prevalence of extreme weather events helped those shifts often because um, a biodiverse approach where you're, where you're growing many crops at once is a much more... Um, resilient farming method if you're in a a changing, in a world of changing climates, right? Because maybe one crop fails, but nine still succeed. Whereas if you're all in on one and it fails, you're completely screwed, right? And so um, as there were extreme weather events, basically these networks were able to work with other farmers to help them shift the way they worked. When plantings got wiped out, we could replant with new and with different seeds. Um, And it actually... It sounds kind of slow and like incremental, but in just a few short years, it actually really changed the math on percentage of cropland under cultivation in an ecological manner in the Philippines. It's so interesting that you use like the term slow because like I think that pretty much exemplifies kind of what the slow food movement is. It's about literally going back to like the nuts and bolts of things and um just putting that care into each step of essentially, like you said, ecological preservation. So So tell us a little more about the connection between that experience and and what you're doing today, how you're sourcing the the products that go into your boxes. So ultimately there are two different um, subscriptions that people can get, right? There's sort of two different tracks. There's essentials, which is this pantry, pantry staples like grits and beans and pastas, and then there's um, the global delicacies, right? Or you can put them together, which is what I would certainly recommend. Um, on the essentials side, it's, I think, a very straightforward story of um, sourcing products from producers who are bringing back heirloom strains. So Geechee Boy Mill on Edisto Island in South Carolina is working with these um, strains of corn that are been passed down from you know one one single strand of farmer for a hundred plus years, and then f- they're figuring out how to cultivate it and actually bring it back into into wider circulation. Or Steve Sando in Napa with Rancho Gordo, my, my favorite person in the world, <laughs> one of mine as well, uh, who is bringing back and and helping to sort of recultivate 
and repopularize this seemingly infinite variety of not just beans, but also prepared hominy and interesting herbs and all this stuff that is so much more delicious than what you can get in the grocery store and also so much better for the planet because it promotes a much more resilient sort of food ecosystem. Um, on the sort of global delicacy side, I think there's a, it's a slightly less straightforward story of this is straight up a social good because of things like travel costs, though what, one of the things that I'm really interested in doing as much as possible is where there are domestic producers of these delicious flavors trying to go that route. So for instance, in our, so the, the very first delicacies box we, we have is Spain-ish. And the ish is because one of the ingredients is a, a harissa spread, which is Moroccan. But if you actually look at the sort of culinary cultural traditions, in, as, as a, a friend of mine from uh, Valencia, which is, who's Catalan, told me that, you know, Morocco is just as Spanish as, Valencia, as uh, Catalonia, um, which I won't, I won't touch. But, <laughs> um, but so there's actually these, guys, this, uh, these producers, Villa Gerada, who I'm sure you've met at some point in Seattle, who make just a stunning, stunning harissa, which is so good. And it's, and it's more of a condiment than a paste, right? So you can spread it on toast or whatever. And so I really wanted to include that early on. Um, and overall, the focus in these global delicacies is remains on sort of small producers trying to cultivate and protect and even popularize local food traditions. And so that's a big part of it is trying to help um, preserve these food systems that matter locally by bringing them to pallets um, all over. Over, over lunch, while we were talking, you made a really interesting distinction between advocacy and, and action, that what you were doing before, maybe those weren't the words that you used to describe it, but what you were doing before was about advocacy, was about changing minds. What you're doing now is, is about action, is about actually you know, putting your money where your mouth is, no pun intended, and, and supporting producers who are growing things in regenerative or, or otherwise sustainable ways. Um, how do you... Um, that... that said there's also an inherent tension between capitalism and supporting <laughs> supporting regenerative sustainable agriculture so how how have you found the balance between those those two things the the action element of what you're doing and the actually having to build a business <laughs> around yeah. it well i think the I mean, honestly it's a going back to the very first conversation we had kind of an elizabeth warren like mm. outlook that i think allows you to square that circle right that it's um there is a version of capitalism where those two things are not at all intention. Yeah. It's not the version we live in currently, but there are aspects of it that can be and could be, right? Where, you know, it is the case that our agricultural subsidy system totally advantages um, essentially bad actors in the agriculture system in many ways. Just say a little more about that. Uh, so, uh, talking there about things like corn subsidies that encourage monoculture, um, massive monoculture farming with massive pestic pesticide use. Um, that is why most um, industrial products or many industrial products are sweetened with corn syrup as an example. And right? mono monocultural farming yes. is just, <laughs> it's where you, yes. the farmer is just growing one thing. Yes, is that exactly. what you're saying? And that's and not so, necessarily best for like the soil and exactly. that so, type of stuff. So biodiverse farming 
is growing many things at once in the same place, which can which will generally have natural um, or when done well will have um, essentially natural pest resist pest repellent effects. Right, so you have to use less or little or no um, pesticides and fungicides. Um, you'll if you sort of rotate these crops in different ways, you can essentially naturally fertilize the soil rather than having to pump a bunch of nitrogen-based fertilizers in. And all of that matters because it um, hurts the farmers, it hurts people who live around the farm, it hurts people who live downstream from wherever the farm that farm is doing that. Um, and so when we talk about sort of more regenerative, more sustainable agriculture, a big part of it is figuring out ways that um, the sort of... It sounds kind of hippy-dippy, but ways that the earth can provide, right? Ways that um, crops can work in harmony with each other to, um, to make things work uh, rather than requiring a bunch of chemicals. I mean, listening to that explanation, I feel hope. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> Unlike watching the Democratic debate last night. Oh. No, all right, that's just me. Never mind. Um, should we do a little rapid fire? Let's do some rapid fire. Right. Okay, so Ben, you live in Connecticut. Apparently, there's a lot of great pizza there. What's your favorite kind of pizza? So um, I live in New Haven, to be specific, and it matters for pizza. And um, at the moment, I'm really digging Sally's. Um, preferences can change. There's also this new one called Next Door, which is great, which has lots of really good salads and stuff. But for like going in and out, um, my daughter's be my three-year-old daughter is becoming royalty at Sally's. Everyone knows her. Um. What is your, since you brought her up, what's your daughter's favorite thing to eat? Uh, at at this point in time, cheese pizza from Sally's. Yeah. Or um, <laughs> what she calls a cheese taco, which is literally shredded cheddar cheese on a tortilla microwave for like 25 seconds. Oh, yeah. I eat that too. I'm down. Uh, Sally, that's my girl. Okay. Um, <laughs> what is the most like exciting product that you've been able to source for one of your boxes? What, like, what, what have you been the most excited about to put in the box? Well, so when I, when I started, um, actually, uh, razor clams was a big part of like in my, in my mind, an archetypal food that is like so, so good. And so few people know about it in the U S um, and that was in our uh, Spanish box to begin with. Um, the mole paste and huit la coche in, our Me in the Mexico box are also products I'm really happy with and feel like uh, have the potential to kind of open some, some eyes and some palates to uh, what you can do with corn fungus, which is what huit la coche is. But Yum. Don't don't let that um, dissuade you. It's essentially mushrooms that grow on corn. No, it is um, delicious. I'm, yeah. yeah. Um, what's uh, what's the most interesting place you visited in search of the products that you carry, Ooh. or maybe not the most, but but among the more interesting places that you've been? Oh my! Um, you must have been to a lot I really, of places. So I really <laughs> loved. I mean, in terms of like food travel experiences, uh, I loved Spice Market in India mm. in Bangalore. I loved, uh, um, there's actually, there's, there's a Mexico, there's a market in Mexico city that has this unbelievable variety of dried mushrooms, which I haven't yet found a place for in my bag, but I definitely came back with a suitcase stuffed full of dried mushrooms. Um, totally legal. I declared it and it was all fine. Um, uh, and I mean, Spain, I just, I could, I could 
spend so long in a Spanish market. Um, yeah, I went in October. I went to visit the Pimenton producers that we mm. work with in Western Spain in Extremadura. And we went uh, to coincide with the pepper harvest and the smoking, which, you know, all takes place in a couple of weeks following the harvest season. It was just it was fascinating. It was an area of Spain that also is famous for its black pigs that they raise to make Iberico ham. Yeah, uh, like yeah we, we ate, we ate uh, pretty well on that trip. I imagine. Um, what's the best meal you've ever had that cost less than five or ten bucks? Um... So a, the Greenpeace office in Mexico City is in Coyoacan, neighborhood kind of in the southern part of the city. And like three blocks away from the office, uh, I was walking back to the hotel I was staying in one day, and there was just this, this taco stand. It was pouring rain. There was this taco stand, and it was mobbed. All locals, obviously, there was no tourists particularly there. And it was just like, I have to have that. I don't know what it, like, I don't know what, if, if it's that mobbed by this many people while it's this gross outside, I have to have that. And it was honestly the best tacos I've what ever had. What was it? Um, it was this mix. It was a mix of several things. So I think it was like some cecina, which is the, the cured beef. But also I think there was like some um, various of the head parts and like a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting stuff going on. Nice. And that's actually just really great advice for people who travel and you want to find good food. Yes. Follow the locals. Eat the head parts. Absolutely. And eat the head parts. <laughs> or as we say in Louisiana, you, you suck the crawfish heads. Suck the crawfish heads? Yeah, is, that, that a, is that a metaphor? Is that no. A, it's literally. A, it, literally, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can, I, can I do one more? Yeah, please. please. So in, uh, in Rome, I was walking around with some friends, and again, we sort of were, it was in the Trastevere, Trastevere neighborhood, and... We're walking around, and, and there's this little like takeout shop that had this long line of all Italians sitting out of it. And I was like, okay, I'm get, getting in this line. I don't know what it's for. And <laughs> um, got to the front of the line, and it was for so supli, which are essentially you know arancini or like risotto balls, but they're saucy um, inside. But it, specifically, it was called supli al telefono because it had this molten mozzarella core. And when you take a bite in, it like stretches out like a the original Instagram like a telephone cheese like a, like a telephone yeah like a telephone cord, um, and that's my like answer one A. All right, that, to, that sounds pretty good yeah. too. Yeah. So uh, so Ben, you mentioned that our listeners can find you on social media at Ben Two Table. That's B E N the number two table, and online at Ben Two Table dot com. Uh, any final thoughts you want to share? Um, I'll also share one other thing with, um, about finding me and 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 uh, hopefully subscribing is that um, for folks who subscribe from um, from here, uh, if you use the code HRN, so Heritage Radio Network, but HRN, um, when you sign up for a new subscription, you'll get twenty dollars off that subscription, and Ben to Table will donate ten dollars to Heritage Radio Network. Oh, nice. What's, do um, so, you have a what's the next box in the subscription? What what are so, people signing up for? So if you sign up for today, if you signed up today, you would first get the Spain box or the sort of month one essentials, um, and then March is India. Wow, great! Don't want to miss that one. Yeah. There will be a few items from your co-host Ethan uh, in that box. As a matter of fact, don't be surprised. Um, though, though, though we discussed being on this podcast before agreeing to that. Yes, so, with full journalistic no integrity. Oh, uh, no quid Ethan is exactly. everywhere these days. If you haven't checked out the, oh, the yeah, Bon Appetit yeah. article about his royal cinnamon mm -hmm. that came out five days ago, it's going viral. So uh, Google that, royal cinnamon. <laughs> Thank you, Valerie. 
Um, as always, you can reach us at why <laughs> food at heritage radio network.org at why food podcast on all the socials. Uh, you can reach me via my spice company, burlap and barrel at burlap and barrel on Instagram. You can find me on social at foodie in New York or my blog foodie Thanks to Jess Krenjic, our amazing sound engineer. Uh, thanks to the red crickets for our theme song, which is called blind. And most importantly, Ben, thank you for joining us this week. Thank you both. Yeah, it's my thanks, pleasure. Ben. See you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.